Off the coast of Anchorage, Alaska, there's an area where the water goes out at, at, at low tide and, and forms these what they call mudflats. It's known as the mudflat region. And that area is actually very dangerous. There's signs posted. It, it's very serious. And it doesn't look serious. It actually looks very inviting as a place to go for a walk or to go for a ride, say, in an ATV and go explore. But the problem is, is that area, the mudflats, are made up not just of mud or sand. It's actually what's known as glacial silt. And what happens is as the waters recede very quickly, uh, what happens is that water gets absorbed very quickly and air pockets actually form in the silt and, and you don't know where they are and, and actually if you can get caught in it very easily and it's not like getting caught in, in quicksand, it's more like getting caught by super glue. Back in 1991, and, and I'll say this too, the other problem is when the waters come back in at high tide, they come in some of the fastest high tides in the, in the, in the world, and uh, it, it comes up so quickly that it can be a tragic place. And the water's so cold that hypothermia can set in almost instantly. Back in 1991, there was a couple, they were on a, a vacation up there, and, and this young couple decided to rent, rent ATVs, go for a ride and check out the area and, and explore the wilderness. And, and, and when they saw the mudflats, they were just drawn to it. They saw the signs, but they didn't care about the signs. They thought, hey, we're from out of town. We don't know any different. Let's go ride out there. And they did, and it was going just fine. They were having a ball. Just seeing some of the, the wildlife and the silt and, and, and looking at what had receded with the tide and what was still left behind. And, and they were riding along, but then it happened. The young lady, her, her vehicle stalled. And not knowing any better, she just jumped off and immediately was up to her knees in glacial silt. And as she tried to break herself loose to get back on the vehicle, it only caused her to sink deeper up to her thighs. And the more she struggled, the more she started to sink in further. Now, I didn't really realize how serious it was. I thought, well, big deal, we'll just get some help. In fact, by this point, cars were stopping along the road up on a cliffside looking down on that bay and where all that glacial silt is. And people were calling down to the other guy, the guy in the other ATV, don't get off your, your vehicle, we'll call for help. And they did. They called 911. The, police, or the fire department showed up soon after that. And for the next couple hours, used fire hoses to try and attempt to break her loose by just shooting the glacial silt to try and wash it away, but to no avail. Things were getting desperate because they could see the tide was coming back in. Time was of the essence. And as a last resort, just trying to figure out how to get her out, and she was starting to get afraid. And, and with that, they, they called in the army helicopter that came in, and, and they actually put a harness around her and, and tried to lift her up out of the glacial silt, out of the dirt, out of the mud. And, and it didn't work, and actually what started to happen was her legs were being dislocated in her hips. Imagine this. They realized if they kept trying to lift her out, her legs were actually going to just be pulled out of her body. Sorry to disgust you, but this was real. Well, then they put a wetsuit on her, hopefully that, that maybe she'd be able to survive for a while because the waters by this point were starting to come up. And, and, and with that, they tried and they tried and they tried. And folks, I wish this story ended differently, but it didn't. She died. As her best friend watched on, they couldn't get her out. And I tell you that tonight because, you know, it happens. 
Not just in Anchorage, Alaska, this glacial silt, this problem of dirt and dust, though we ignore it, we avoid it, we don't want to talk about it, it's real. And all of us are stuck in it. It's called mortality. It's called, what the scriptures call, talk about is sin and death, and they are very much related. And if, unless anyone here can raise their hand and say, you know what, I've never made a mistake. I've never sinned. I've never once had a bad thought, a lustful thought, an angry thought. I've never lost my temper. I've never been greedy. I, I've never been prideful. No, I, I don't think there's anybody going to raise their hand because every one of us, every one of us has fallen short of God's perfection. And every one of us is one day closer, one heartbeat closer to a day when our body turns back to dust. The scripture says, you are dust, and to dust you will return. We are trapped. We are stuck. And that's just part of the the human condition. It's part of who we are. We need some some kind of rescue in the midst of this. But this is nothing new. We need someone to intervene, someone who can enter into the human dilemma that we all face. And this dilemma has been going on for a long time. You know, this big thing about this movie that came out last week, and I don't even know how many shades there are of it, but you know what? Everybody's talking about it. It's like you can't turn on TV. Fifty Shades of Grey. Fifty Shades of Grey. Commercials. People talking. Talk shows. Everyone. Who's going? Oh, yeah. We're going to go. This is great. This is the best thing ever. Do you know who the leading readers of that book were before it became a movie? Teenagers. Not moms. Not married people. Teenagers. Number one seller to Teenagers. And now it's a movie. I'm just so thankful, aren't you? You know, it it is a day in which we live. And and we've become kind of numb to it. We're so stuck, we don't even talk about it anymore. We don't even think about it. It's just part of our culture. It's just part of our life. It doesn't really matter anymore, does it? And yet it's nothing new. Maybe you've heard about a a guy by the name of David. David lived quite a while back. He... uh, was started out as a shepherd, and, and God called him and called him to be king. He became king, and there was a day in David's life, and David was known in two places in Scripture. He's the only person who ever was referred to in this way as a man after God's own heart. I mean, imagine having that title in the presence of Almighty God, a man after God's own heart, dearly loved. Well, David as king, he had so much at his disposal, very wealthy, uh, very powerful, had everything you could ever want. And one night, David couldn't sleep. He went up on the rooftop of the palace, and as he looked over his kingdom, the kingdom that God had blessed him with, the kingdom that God had given him to reign with integrity and justice and love and righteousness, that whole kingdom that God had blessed him with. David saw something that got his attention. A young lady was bathing, middle of the night, and she caught his eye. Immediately, he he called his servants and he said, go find out who that girl is. And they did. And they came back a short time later and they told him. And notice what they said. This is Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. Notice the two connectors they gave David. They said, she's somebody's daughter, and she's also a married woman, King David. 
You see, but David wasn't going to hear that. He was more interested in what he saw because what he saw was being objectified in his brain. There was tunnel vision. There was no going back in his mind. He knew what he wanted and he was going to get it. And after all, he deserved it. So he thought. He sends the servants back to say, bring her to me. And they did. I mean, who says no to the king? Of course, she went. She comes back and, and of course, things happen. I don't know how many shades, but things happened. And it got steamy enough that sometime later, word got back to David from Bathsheba that she was pregnant. She was going to have a baby, and it was very clear whose baby it was because her husband hadn't been home for months. He was serving the country off at war, serving for King David, serving for God. David realized he had a problem. He didn't want to really face the sin part, so he had a better idea how to cover it up. So he immediately asked the, 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 his servants to go out on the, the battle lines and bring Uriah, her husband, home. And then he had it all set up, and, and uh, he wined and dined him and had it all squared away for him to go home, spend some time with Bathsheba. I mean, after all, he'd been serving the country. He, after all, he should go home and spend some time with his wife. And yet, being a man of integrity that Uriah was, he said, how could I possibly go and spend time with my wife when all of my fellow brothers are out on the front lines serving away from home? Who am I to be able to go home? And he refused. He stayed right at the temple or at the palace gate. Well, David had another idea. Maybe if I get him drunk. So a man after God's own heart brings Uriah a man who's married to the woman he had slept with some weeks before and tries to get him drunk. I mean, this is right out of Scripture. See, there's nothing new going on, folks. He thinks if he can get him drunk enough, maybe he'll go home and he'll forget the whole thing and everything will be fine. But it doesn't work. David has to up the ante and how he's going to deal with this problem, this dilemma, this inconvenience in his life. And then he has an idea. He hatches a plan and he tells his servants out on the front lines, Joab, he says, make sure Uriah the Hittite gets sent out on the front lines and then make sure our army retreats, leaving him there to die. And that's what they do. The report comes back to David. The battle didn't go well. Uriah the Hittite was killed, and so the plan was enacted. Not only had David committed adultery, not only had David lied, David also committed murder and a host of other sins along the way that were pulling a veil over his face that really was entrapping his entire life in the silt of death, but he couldn't see it. He was convinced he was fine. He had it under control. He had everything where he needed it to be. And not only that, after a time of grieving, he took Bathsheba home as his wife. What a story, huh? Sounds like it could have been on a TV show, a reality series, just last week, right? And yet it comes right out of God's word. And the question is, is what does God do about a thing like this? How does he handle something that dark, something that deceptive, something that disturbing? At least I hope it's disturbing. What happens is God sends a prophet named Nathan. 
And Nathan walks in to, to visit the king one day, and he tells him a story. He says, King David, let me just tell you a story of something going on in your kingdom that you really need to know about. And with that, David probably edged up his, his throne a little bit and says, yeah, do tell. I, I want to know what's going on in my kingdom. With that, Nathan started to tell the story. He said, there is a man in your kingdom, a very wealthy, very, very blessed man. Has everything he could ever want. And do you know what he did, King David? Do you know that when he held a party, what he did is he went to someone who had very little, had only one sheep in his flock. He had only one sheep, and he stole that sheep. And he slaughtered it and had a party and rejoiced over it. He took away that man's only, only piece of livestock. David got furious. He says, tell me who it is. I, I'm going to see to it. That man should be put to death for what he did. Did you hear what I said? should be put to death. And with that, Nathan the prophet looked him square in the eye and says, you, King David, you are that man. Because you betrayed your love, your calling. The righteousness of God has been betrayed. You have turned your back on Almighty God by betraying God and having this relationship with a married woman. There was no hiding anymore. The glacial silt was over David's head. He had nowhere to go. Or did he? Scripture says that David was cut to the heart. That he was moved to a place of repentance. You know, repentance means literally that when we have been walking away from God and by the Spirit's work in our life, when we are convicted of our sin, that God moves us to turn. And that's repentance. And David repented. And here's the first line of what he wrote in Psalm 51. This is the beginning of his penitential prayer. Read it with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Have mercy on me, O God. You know, mercy is, is calling out to God and saying, Lord, may it not be for me as I deserve. It's owning up and realizing I have failed God. I have blown it. Uh, in the sight of Almighty God, I am I'm not worthy of anything because of what I've done. David realized it. How deep the silt had become. How deep the dirt and the dust of his mortality had become in the sight of a God who is perfect. He calls out and he says, have mercy on me. It's really, there's nowhere else to go than calling out on God's mercy in that moment. And you might be there tonight. Because the deal is, God knows everything. You're not pulling a fast one on Him. You're not hiding from God. Do you really think you get away with that? It's only a matter of time before the truth always comes out for everyone. But the truth is, God already knows. And a God who calls us to turn to Him, to repent tonight. Have mercy on me, O oh God. He goes on. He says, according to what? Your unfailing judgment? No. Your unfailing love. Because we have an incredible God who defines himself based in unfailing love. Love that truly does not fail. A God who loves us, who has always loved us. A God who calls us home. A God who calls us to be reminded that he desires a relationship with you. And that sin and death get in the way. And a God who pulls off the blinders of our tunnel vision tonight to see. He's calling us to see him again for who he is. 
and a God who welcomes you into his presence. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Literally picturing like someone that, that blots something out like with a towel or a, a rag that is cleaning up a mess that once was dirty and disgusting and a God who is being called on to clean and blot it out. Whenever I read that verse, I just think of a, a building up in Minnesota where I grew up outside of Annandale, Minnesota. We would be always driving up there when I was a kid uh, to go to a, a lake cottage up there where my uncle lived and, and owned. And, and, and this, this shed was at the, at basically when the road came over a hill and there was this T in the road at the bottom and straight ahead in the woods was this pristine, beautiful white shed. And it was amazing because this white shed I'd notice over the years, every time we'd go up there, sometimes there'd be all this graffiti all over it. I mean, it was a perfect place for kids to just draw on, write things, sometimes many things that were obscene. And they'd draw it because you'd see it from the road as you came over the hill. Your lights would shine right on it. And what I noticed is every time, every other time we'd come up there and it would be white again. And then you'd see graffiti and then it would be white again. And what became clear is the owner really took great pride in his shed. He cared about it deeply. And he wanted it to look good the way he intended it. And he would keep blotting it out with white paint. Well, one year I went up there and I saw that the shed was no longer there. What was left was just a foundation and a lot of charred remnants of what once was the shed. It wasn't until later I found out what had happened. You see, one night... Some kids got tired of doing graffiti. They had a new plan. They had a, a better plan in their minds. And what they did was, is they broke inside the shed and, and they looked for what they wanted and they found it. There was a, a can of gasoline in the corner over by some of the yard equipment and they started to, to sprinkle it around the room. Another one of them pulled out a match, lit it on fire, and as they went to flee the shed, what they didn't know is that when they walked in, the door had actually locked from the outside and they were now trapped in a death chamber. And as this thing started to fill up with heat and flames and smoke, and they ducked down to the floor, gasping for air, realizing that their life here and now was over. It was in the last split second before they thought they were done that they felt themselves being thrown outside and gasping for now fresh air, wondering, what's going on? How did this happen? And as they laid there on the ground, watching this thing go down in flames and then collapse, it wasn't until later that when the fire department investigated the scene, that they found the remains of a man who was later identified in the flames, in the fire, underneath all the rubble and the ashes. They found the remains of a man who was found to be the owner of the shed, the one who had built it, the one who had protected it, the one who had taken care of it, and now the one who had saved these boys. You know, I tell you that tonight. Because that's our story too. We've done some terrible things. And our God has called us here to repent. But it doesn't stop there. We are reminded tonight that our God comes in. In the midst of our brokenness. In the midst of death. In the midst of what we have created. The mess. And he sets us free. May we get to know that God more and more. In these coming weeks. A God who blots out our transgressions. A God who goes the way of a cross to die in our place. But a God who doesn't stay there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we repent.
we turn from our sin. All the ways we've been trying to hide from you and hide from others. All the ways, Lord, that we have lost our integrity, lost our way, lost our conscience, becoming numb to the realities of our culture, where it's affecting our relationships, marriages, families, workplaces. Lord, it is tearing us apart. We need a renewal, and you've come tonight to grant it. Lord, we begin this Lenten season with a spirit of repentance, turning from our sin, even where that's so difficult, where the, the grasp of it over us is so powerful, and the silt of death and sin is over us. But you are a God who loosens that grip by becoming the one who would go that way of being trapped by it, to overcome it once and for all. Lord, we turn to you as that great God and Redeemer among us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.